bitch, please. Oh, bitch, please, my ass. You want a sandwich? Dig that. Oh, hell yeah. She's a bad I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. If I wasn't a Christian man, I'd probably be kicking in your ass. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Things in our past become part of our future. In some cases, we need to heal what has happened to us in the past to keep moving in the future. And our guest today will give us some clues on how to make that possible. And you would listen to him here next here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please. Drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to the JB's Low Tech Podcast. As I stated earlier, before the commercial break, a lot of our life today has to do with our past and how our past shaped us for the future. Well, today's guest will give us, as I stated, some insights on how our past may be affecting our future. And I'd like to bring in right now Don St. John. How you doing, Don? I'm doing really well. Thank you, JB. I, I'm happy to be talking to you. Don, you are a psychotherapist and a teacher. What in your past made you choose that profession? Uh, yeah, I'd love to. You know, em emotionally and intellectually, I quit school at the very beginning of my sophomore year in high school. I dragged my body for three more years. 
taking the easiest courses I could get away with. And two days after high school, uh, I left town and joined the Air Force and was fortunate to be stationed in Bermuda for a couple of years. And yeah, the University of Maryland offers an overseas program. So I started taking courses and realized that I actually like education when I'm treated like an adult. And, you know, nobody was walking up the aisles, kicking me in the shins or slamming a textbook over my head or, you know, slapping my face. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I liked it. And when I got out of the Air Force, I went, finished college and, and went on to graduate school. And as I was getting pretty close to completing my doctorate in clinical psychology, I, I became disillusioned with the whole field. And I think psychedelics played a part of it. Uh, uh, the time, the Vietnam War, many factors came together. And I left the University of Kansas and uh, went to California in search of the real stuff. And pretty much ever since, until, oh, I'd say about 10 years ago, I was in one training program or another. I trained in structural body work. Uh, I, I trained in a wide variety of psychotherapy modalities. And, you know, I started putting it all together and it culminated in a book that I just rewrote and uh, titled Healing the Wounds of Childhood and Culture, An Adventure of a Lifetime. Don, I noticed that in your childhood, like myself, you were raised Catholic. Can you tell me if that had any effect on the field of study that you now write in and talk about? Uh, yes, it did. Yes, it did. Yeah, I, and Go ahead. Go ahead. No, go ahead. It's very inspiring, you know? No, I was, I was told that on several occasions by teachers that I would never amount to anything. So, <laughs> so I totally understand what, you, what you're saying. What about your past got you into wanting to help others? Well, you know, I, I grew up in an environment that was extremely challenging. And, you know, my mother, who, who loved me enormously, and I loved her, but she had extremely poor impulse control. She was very easily frustrated. And she had no restraints against swinging. And she's, you know, she, she'd slap me around almost every single day and often with, you know, wooden stirring spoons and her shoe. And it would be accompanied by intense rage. She, you know, she'd lose control. So uh, it was a kind of terrifying environment and my father was he was passive and didn't participate much 
And so, and, and you know, he'd say things like, I wanted to be a prize fighter. That was one of my early dreams. And, you know, I'd say something like, I want to be a boxer. And he'd say, yeah, you're going to box oranges. That's what you're going to box, you know? <laughs> and that, <laughs> Yeah. And when I realized I wasn't going to be a boxer, I didn't quite have what it takes, uh, I went into the Air Force not having any idea what I wanted to do. And when I started taking classes, uh, I liked the psychology courses that I took. And again, with the University of Maryland's overseas program, and then that coincided with my recognizing that I really needed help. You know, I had no idea what abuse and trauma, didn't know any of those words. Mm -hmm. But I knew one morning when I woke up in the back seat of my car and I was bleeding from my throat uh, from being out drinking and hollering and whooping it up all night long, I knew I needed help. So I went to the Yellow Pages, found a psychiatrist that worked on Saturdays, and started psychotherapy. Don, I noticed in your writings, in your notes, that you uh, talk about PTSD. Do you consider yourself a victim of it in your childhood? Yeah, there's, there's another diagnosis. There are two kinds of PTSD. One can be considered like a simple PTSD. Mm-hmm. A soldier you know, goes to war and, and, and the effects of battle can create a PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome or disorder. And... I'd call that a simple PTSD. What I was dealing with was what we're calling complex PTSD. Mm -hmm. Complex because there wasn't one event, you know, it wasn't a battle or being mugged or raped or hit by a car. All of those can cause PTSD in a pretty healthy person. Of course, the healthier, the, the more resourced an individual is, the better his chances, his or her chances against, you know, uh, contacting PTSD. But in my situation, uh, the traumas were part of the environment. They were part of what was happening almost on a daily basis. Don, when you speak of complex trauma, would it be because you received uh, trauma at at home and at school uh, and other places in your life? Is that what makes it complex? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it happened, you know, with the family. It happened on a daily basis. I mean... You know, for example, my mother started screaming and 
slapping when I was an infant before I was a year old. So, you know, that's a pretty traumatic experience, even if it were one time. But if it's like five times a week, 50 out of 52 weeks a year for 15 years, plus going to a school, school, both elementary and high school, uh, where they assume that it's perfectly okay to slap you across the face or have you bend over and use a paddle on your butt. I mean, you know, (laughs) it's coming from a variety of directions over a long period of time. Now, I'll tell you the positive side of all that. There was no way that one single kind of intervention, one type of psychotherapy, for example, was going to restore my humanity. Just no way. I I had to explore everything that was out there. And while doing that, you know, over a course of 50-something years, I realized that most of us can use many of those kinds of interventions, practices, disciplines, comprehension, that most, if not all of us, can enrich our lives enormously by recognizing that this road discipline comprehension that most, if not all of us, can enrich our lives enormously by recognizing that this road towards becoming fully human, towards becoming whole, towards be, you know, becoming alive and vital, uh, it's a path for all of us. Culture of America in the 1930s through the 1970s or 80s, in the culture was to, you know, corporal punishment, beat the child, to, um, I don't want to use the term submission, but to, uh, to have them behave you want, wanted, the way you wanted them to behave. Does that have something to do with a lot of the uh, PTSD that we see in adults today and anxiety? Or, yeah. <laughs> or, exactly. That was uh, a good one. Right. Or abuse toward, uh, you know, watching your parents be abusive toward each other and whatnot. Or it, it was part of America's culture. Is America now paying in your estimation now paying a price for that? Oh, of course. And it's a price that we're paying for not having... But see, I don't know where to begin. Where did it all begin? If you go back a couple of hundred years, I mean, in many ways, it was far, far worse. You know, there was hardly anything called a childhood. You know, when you're 10 years old, you just go to work, you know, and uh, beatings were just part of raising children for 
for a long, long time. And, you know, I think now one of the dangers is going in the other direction and parents not providing sufficient structure. Children need structure. Yes. They, they, need to, they need to be, you know, held. They, they need to be accountable. They need to recognize that their parents have needs too and, and their parents' marriage is a priority. Don, my children struggle with the fact when they were young, I would uh, hold them accountable for their actions and made them responsible for the, the way they did things. Not violently, but, you know, held them accountable. Whereas they saw a lot of their friends just get away with bloody, bloody murder because their parents didn't want to hold them accountable. And now I see in my children the ability to to uh, be able to sit down and reason and work through things and and answer a lot of their own stuff instead of calling me all the time like a lot of their friends do when the smallest thing happens they they run to their parents. Is that um, a good way of maybe raising your children? An important skill. Right. that you're describing being raised in that environment we're all suffering some form of um, post-traumatic childhood it's, you know i guess you could call it childhood disorder um how do we become whole if, if you have four practices of wholeness uh can you don for those who struggle with the violent or out of control childhood and maybe is suffering from or possibly suffering from a, a form of PTSD. How do we become whole again? I notice you have uh, some thoughts on uh, making oneself whole. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to. And, and it's what I've come to o o over many years. Uh, let's start with the body. And you know, there, there's two sides to the body. There's the body from the outside, you know, what you and I can see when we look at someone, what we can touch, whether it's our own or someone else's. But there's also the inside or the, the experience of your body. So, for example... You don't experience a leg. You experience sensations. You experience the feedback from movement. You experience how you're living and feeling in your leg. And I think this is an important understanding because it very much relates to, to our sense of ourselves. Okay, so for example, when when people feel relatively powerless, let's say, mm -hmm. like they don't have agency in in their relationships or in their work environment or in their families, typically they're not in touch with the powerful muscles of their back of their shoulders, you know? And 
as people can get in touch with what's actually there, you know, when we, you hear the expression, it's all inside of us. Right. Well, part of that is it, it's there in our body. And to make those connections, to, to get those links, and there are disciplines out there like uh, Feldenkrais, like Continuum. Yoga is the most popular, but it depends on the teacher as to whether they emphasize that sense of connection, you know, to feel the movement, to feel the stretch, not simply to do it the right way, but to feel it as it's in process. So that's one level, you know, attending to the body, attending to our connection to the body, to our living in the body. You know, we, we live as if the body's purpose is to carry the head, you know, that it's all up there. And the purpose of the body, you know, is to carry it around so it can do and say brilliant things. But... You know, it, it has relatively little use beyond that. And that is altogether not true. You know, it's, yeah, I can go on and just, you, you might want to cut me off and help me to keep it simple, JB, because let, let's just say that restoring my connection to my body that had been frozen and hypertense, okay? It was way too tense and lacked feeling, both emotional and sensation. And I had to restore that to come back to life. Don, what are the other parts of of your wholeness practices? Psychological and delving into what you believe at the deepest levels of your being, what you believe to be true. And, you know, we make decisions and we formulate beliefs long before we can walk and talk. It is. And when you, you know, when you start to realize that, for example, for example, you know, I learned very, very quickly the world's not safe. At any minute, a fist can come flying through the air, a palm, and slap my face. You know, it's like, whoa, where am I? That becomes embodied as a belief, you know? And then we make a decision out of that. For example... Don't trust, and then fill in the blank. Don't trust authority. Don't trust women. Don't trust men. You know, we make decisions as well. So all this is happening out of our our lived experience, not out of mental calculations. You know, we don't think about it in words like, oh, this is not a safe place. I better get defensive. You know, we simply do it. 
And the problem is, 30 years later, it's like the programs in your computer. The programs are running it. Don, is it possible that this would call us flashbacks later on in our life and all of a sudden we have this, all this undealt with uh, trauma that we now need to deal with? Or things that we've tried to overcome for decades and we can't seem to overcome, could these things from our past be causing these reactions? Well, whenever you, you know, find yourself in one of those situations, and one of the more common ones is in relationships, you know, very frequently children conclude that the only way they're going to get love and closeness with their parents is to give up what they really want and go along with what their parents want. So it becomes a choice. You know, either I get love and closeness or I get my freedom. And they don't believe they can have both, which is what we need to have a really good emotionally intimate close, open-hearted relationship with another human being. We need to know that we can have that closeness and have our freedom. All traumas are wounds, but not all wounds are necessarily trauma. One of the problems, Debbie, is the word trauma is used in a number of different ways. You know, all the way from your boss yelling at you, you go home and say it was a traumatic experience, to being, you know, on a battlefield and seeing your your friend's head get blown off. You know, those are very, very, very different things, but that word gets applied in, in different ways. So we have to understand what it is that we're speaking about. Don, I see that you speak about healing wounds. How do we go about, or what is your definition of healing those wounds? It, it means that our freedom is restored. In the example that I just gave, where let's say a little child concludes, and it happens over time, that child concludes that they can't have their own autonomy. They can't be independent and be close to both their parents. That it requires giving something up of their freedom. You know, okay, so being healed then means recognizing that you can have both. One one example. May, may I continue just a little sure. further in answering this question? Thank yeah. you. Uh, being healed means, for example, uh, you know, many many people have so much 
inhibition around sexuality that they literally lock up their pelvis so the free movement of their pelvis is restricted restoring that movement and being able to enjoy sexuality without those restrictions another example of healing developing a sense of strength a, a sense of i'm capable i can handle things i can take care of myself those are examples of healing if i previously didn't believe that and i think most importantly one of the big ones is recognizing and this can be a little hard to to swallow but recognizing that no matter what it is that happened i'm the one who's writing the story about it yes i was the victim of you know my mother's fit and i was the author of the story that got written about that so don is it possible to raise a child without wounding them not that i've seen you know but you know the most i think maybe i think the most important thing is for the parent to really want to do their best want to you know examine where their blocks are examine you know how they've overcome challenges from their childhood you know in other words if the parent is engaged in a consciousness or spiritual practice that offers the best chance of minimizing the wounds the child will receive and i'll, I'll say minimizing not eliminating i think it's impossible I don't even know if it's desirable. I, you know, we need challenges. We need to overcome challenges to grow, you know? And and the other thing that I think is important is the degree that a parent can be present with. Don, may I ask, what do you mean by that last statement? Ah, uh, glad you asked. <laughs> Let's say let's say that a human being is made up of a million tiny tiny light bulbs. The the degree of presence is the degree that we can turn those lights on. That's what children want. They want to see their parents lit up and relating to them. from that lit up place. Done about 5 to 10 years ago we started talking about uh millennials in the sense of they were the why generation why 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 they questioned everything and I worked in the athletic world at the time and I know it drove coaches crazy for them they would talk about it this generation all they do is ask why why what why why do i have to do this what is is this a a rub between the two or 
Or is it okay for them to be questioning authority? You know, I, I think it's good to question. I think it's good to examine and to question, you know, because when things come to us, whether it's from a teacher, a politician, a parent, we basically have three choices. One, we can swallow it whole, unexamined, not looked at, just take it in as gospel and claiming it as ours. That's one. Two is to reject it, to shut the door, to rebel, to defy. And the third choice, and in my opinion, the mature choice, is to chew on it. If you think of it as food, taking in lumps of food isn't the best way to get nurtured. Not taking it in, spitting it out, tossing it back, rebelling, defying, not much nurturing there either. But taking it in and chewing it, examining it, questioning it, looking at it, tasting it, smelling it, and then, you know, eliminating what doesn't fit for you and keeping what does, I think, is the mature way to take in something that comes to you from the outside. <laughs> yeah, well, there's a time and a place, you know, to just take it in and do what the coach says. Who do you think was being more negative at that point then? Was it the coaches or was it the kids? I, I don't really know. I, I, think, I think it's a dance. I think the coaches have to under, do their best to understand the kids, to recognize that they are human beings, that they're living in a different universe than, you know, when the coaches were kids 30, 40, 50 years ago, I think that's important. And I think the kids have to be respectful, you know. And, but I don't think there's anything wrong with wanting to know a little bit more about why you're doing something. You know, why should I make a cross block this way instead of the way that I've always made it? I tell you so, kid. You know, that, that could be a turnoff, and it doesn't hurt to say because you have a more effective block and less of a chance of hurting yourself while you do it. Oh, okay, great, thanks, let's go. How do young people navigate with their beliefs through life when they contradict their parents' beliefs and the community's beliefs and the team's beliefs? How do they get through life if that's the case? Again, again, I think it's a process of consideration. Ultimately, it's your life, you know, and parents are preparing, ideally, they're preparing their children to, you know, as you said earlier, to figure it out and make their decisions and not have to call you every second of the, uh, you know, of the day. Now, in doing that, you have to understand as a parent that sometimes they're going to do things differently 
than the way you might have done it or would have done it, you know? Because they're different human beings. Well, I would always... When I would have those conversations with my children, I would always remind them that the final say is theirs. Yes, I can give my opinion, but it's their life, and they have to deal with the outcomes of the decision, and they have to be comfortable with those those decisions and those outcomes. I've already gone through a lot of that stuff and led my life. So I think they they really need to look at they have to make their decision. That's, you know, that's great of you. You're, you know, you're, you're recognizing that their life ultimately, you know? Yeah. I would always tell my son this story when he was, he was a teenager, and I know he got sick of hearing it. When I left my parents' home at 18 to come to college, I basically did it on my own. Uh, I, you know, with all the, the size of my family, I had to um, put myself through college I didn't get much help from them financially. You know, I got love and support, but financially it was not. And so, but that also gave me the the feeling that I got to make decisions for my life, where I live, how I handle things, what I could do, what I could not do. And I always wanted him to understand that he needed to do the same thing himself. The other thing that I tried to get him to understand is if you come to your parents for money, then there's going to be stipulations, there's going to be ties to them. If we give you the money, this is what we're going to expect you to do. Whereas if you take care of it yourself, you don't have to worry about what we think or do things our way. Or have to listen to us. Does forgetting or forgiving the traumas that were done to us or wounds, does it mean that we then have to forget them? Or should we remember those, those wounds and those traumas, but also forgive the people who perpetrated those on us? I don't think we do forget, but I think I'm glad, JB, that you brought up forgiveness because here's one of the one of the pitfalls in having this conversation is parents listening to this sometimes can feel guilty, you know, because. Uh, they start seeing that they weren't always present or, you know, they did this or they didn't do that. And forgiveness is really important here because, and, and it begins you know, with forgiving ourselves. In retrospect, our vision is 2020, but in our day-to-day life, we know what we know. We have the conditions that we have. And you know, typically we're doing the very best we can within the knowledge 
we have and the conditions we have. So, of course, if you could do it over, you would do it better. I mean, we tend to do things better with, with practice. But, you know, when you have one or two or three children and you're having them within a two-year period of each other, you're flying by the seat of your pants often. And uh, forgiveness is so important because otherwise we just carry guilt, we carry resentment, you know, we carry shame. And to have an attitude of, of forgiveness and, you know, for people who have followed the teachings of Jesus, for example, that's so fundamental to, to true Christian teaching, you know, which is forgive. Don, were you able to forgive those who perpetrated uh, wounds or traumas on you as a kid? Also, in, in your case, you suffered at the hands of so-called Christians, nuns and other people people of the church who were supposed to be Christian-like, but, you know, they wounded you or they hurt you in different ways. Were you able to forgive those people? And was it difficult? You know, and of course, I left Catholicism. I went through phases as an agnostic and as an atheist, uh, but uh, it was psychedelics that you know, started me back into a spiritual direction. Uh, this was way back in, in the late 60s. Right. And, you know, I, I realized there was something out there. You know, the most religion, the teaching somewhere along the way, become corrupt, you know, when, when for example, uh, in Catholic school, when, when a nun starts smacking children across the face, he's not demonstrate, demonstrating good Catholic teaching, you know, but in my own case, and with my parents in particular, who, man, there was a lot to be desired and how they raised it. Uh, yeah, I, I came to a place where there's just a lot of compassion in my heart towards them. And I'm so grateful I was able to reach that place before they died. Well, it's a good thing that you, got, you were able to um, come to peace with your, with your parents before they passed on. I've feel as though that if you have a healthy relationship by that time in their life, you should be able to um, forgive each other and, um, and have peace for the rest of their life. It's, you know, as um, someone who, you know, you can forgive them at that point and give them peace. Myself, I was one of nine children in a Catholic home. 
um, age span was 14 years between older oldest and youngest, and it's always was one was coming out of diapers and one was going <laughs> a new one was going into diapers. And but also, it seemed that uh, just because of the environment and the atmosphere that not only the parents could cause wounds or trauma, but older siblings because they're placed in a role to not be a parent, but be a caregiver or be a person just watching their younger sibling and to get them to behave, that can, that, that can be, that could cause traumatic situations also, correct? No, I was just saying, yeah, that's, that's for sure can happen right. and does. Don, what is emotional intimacy and why is it important for us to have in our life? Yeah, I, I think this is such an important topic, and it's a topic that's not really understood. And I emphasize emotional intimacy because many, many people equate the word intimacy with sex. And for many people, that's the only intimacy that they experience. You know, the pleasure and tender moments and passionate moments of sex, the feeling of closeness with another human being during that, you know, 45, 60 minute period. And if that's the only place where there is intimacy, then I think something is missing. And I think, you know, and often it's not, there's not a whole lot of emotional intimacy there either. You know, it could be uh, pleasure, it could be lust, uh, but intimacy as I'm using it, JB, refers to the presence of a heart that's not defended, of a heart that can open to another human being, that, that can stand naked in front of another human being without feeling the need to hide anything, to have secrets, to, you know, to be stuck in ways of being that don't allow for your most tender places to be shown to another person and vice versa. When I was in college, I had taken a low-level psychology course, and the instructor once hit, at one point hit us with this saying that men have sex for intimacy and women won't have sex unless there is intimacy. So you have that yin and yang tug and pull, which I think causes a lot of issues between men and women as far as just intimacy. 
and to understand that? I my thoughts are there is a lot a lot of truth to what you just said. That women frequently just don't get in the mood without a whole lot of intimacy. And even like throughout the day to have closeness and contact. And often for men, you know, they they don't know how to get there unless they're having sex. Is this part of the reason why we be, we become addicted to drugs, alcohol, or other addictions that we... Um mass things with that because the intimacy isn't there and we're lonely and we're just craving something. My personal experience, myself, and my clinical experience, I I think it's one of the big factors in a whole host of human challenges. Like, you know, drug addiction, like loneliness. You know, there's more and more being written about loneliness and how big a risk factor chronic loneliness is for chronic diseases. So I think the the lack of intimacy and it's complex. Because in order to feel comfortable in a sustained, intimate relationship, you also have to feel good about yourself. You You have to feel good about, you know, you in the world. You know, you in your community. Because if you don't, if you don't, it's hard to open yourself up that much because when you open yourself up like that and all that's there is a whole lot of pain and emptiness, that's what you bump into. And who wants to bump into that? I uh, recently was having a conversation with a uh, younger person and he confided in me that he was having issues with um, finding someone to date and someone to fall in love with. And I had to tell him and to clue him into the fact that to be able to love somebody else, you got to get to a point first where you love yourself and get through the traumas of your life and get yourself in a good place where you can love yourself, then be open to love somebody else. Is that uh, the point that we should all be striving to? No said. Done with the wounds and traumas in our life leading and causing a, us to a, down a path of, you know, uh, addiction. Do we need to fix the traumas first before we can fix the addiction or do we fix the addiction first and then try to fix the traumas? Well, you know, that's, that's why I, I refer to this whole process of healing, of becoming whole, finding our wholeness. I refer to it as an adventure of a lifetime. You've always 
more growth than possible. And there's a paradox here. The more we can fully accept ourselves as we are, the easier it is to grow and change. And, you know, addictions, uh, my biggest addiction was cigarettes, you know. That, that, I was really addicted. And it took a long time. It took a long time and, and motivation and skill to be able to finally let them go some, oh, I don't know, 35, 40 years ago. Alcohol wasn't addicted, but I was a problem drinker. And I gave up alcohol when I discovered marijuana back in the 60s. And then I gave it up. You know, and I didn't want anything anymore. And my, you know, I was then in a relationship that for the first time was feeling really good, satisfying. You know, I didn't have the, the urge to leave, find something else. Because I was able finally, after years and years, to connect at a meaningful, deep level. So, you know, I think, I think it's a great adventure and we can develop a greater capacity for intimacy and depth and closeness. Uh, we can let go of habits and addictions, and, uh, but we just keep putting one foot in front of the other and seeing what's out there that can help us and availing ourselves of the resources that are out there, being open to change. Don, in the final minutes we have here, I first need to ask a question. I should have asked at the beginning, do you have a doctorate or are you a, are you a doctor? Yeah, I have a, I do have a PhD, yes. In our, Don, in our closing moments, uh, is there anything else that you would like to touch on as far as um, uh, trauma and PTSD and also, is there information about books or how we can contact you or anything along those lines that you would also like to pass along? I from? think, yeah, I think two things. One, remember we're a whole organism. We're not just the mind or we're not just our psychology or our emotion. That's that's one thing. And we're impacted on all those levels. Uh, there are three things I want to leave you with, J.B. Two, two, we're all in the same boat. One of my biggest insights was that even people who had pretty normal childhood, whatever that means, I mean, let's say relatively trauma-free childhood 
still, still have challenges and issues and have much to learn, you know? I mean, we're all in it together, so don't feel alone. And three, psychedelics are going to be very important in the future healing. The writing is on the wall. The research is happening. Pay attention to it. Well, I have, <laughs> your answer just begged the question, and, um, and I need to ask. Uh, you, you, you've spoken about psychedelics a couple of times. Um, you're not talking about you know, street drugs or anything like that, are you? No. Okay. No. Uh, for example, yeah. I, I am a mess today, meaning teacher in a church that has as its sacrament ayahuasca. We call it ayahuasca. Mm -hmm. And we, in 2000 and might have been 2006, I'm forgetting my date here, received the unanimous United States Supreme Court decision allowing us to partake with our sacrament. So perfectly legal. And there are states and cities now where the therapeutic use of, say, psilocybin is legal. There's research being done at major universities with what's on the streets called ecstasy, MDMA, and being used by you know professional psychologists, psychiatrists to treat PTSD. So no, I don't encourage the uh, illegal use of psychedelics. I mean. You know, it would be silly of me to encourage people to commit felony. Right. But that's changing. Okay. It's changing in every election. You uh, know? One, one and of the most famous... One of the most famous uh, people to use ayahuasca is... Uh, Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for the Packers, who's trying to get traded to the Jets right now. But and it's weird because many of people have asked, why hasn't he been suspended by the league? Why hasn't the league come down on him? Why hasn't he been fined? Why, why hasn't he been suspended? And I think you, you answered that question for us to uh, let us know why uh, he's not suffering any consequences. Well, in some places, you right. got You have to check where for sure. But you know, I think he went. I think he may have gone to Peru or somewhere to do it. So you know, it's out of the jurisdiction of the United States. Yeah, but we we also find that the NFL's jurisdiction. <laughs> The, their law, arm is a lot longer than the law in a lot of cases. So, yeah, but, that's so true. <laughs> but people are wondering why no, why the league didn't come down on him. Well, 
I'm that's, glad that's a good question. Right. But I'm glad we did clear that up because you mentioned it several times and it's like, do I touch that subject? Do I not touch that? And I'm glad that I asked the question that I asked. Uh, I'm glad you did too. <laughs> in the final uh, seconds here, can you, um, you said you had a book. Can you talk about your book, the name of it, and uh, also any other information that you provide and how people can get a hold of it? Uh, yes. The title of my book is Healing the Wounds of Childhood and Culture, subtitle, An Adventure of a Lifetime. Some six, seven years ago, I wrote a book called Healing the Wounds of Childhood, and then I revised it during the pandemic, and essentially, it's a different book. And so I would get that one, the new one. And you can get it anywhere. Uh, you can get it on my website, which is pathofconnection.com. Can you repeat that? Yeah, pathofconnection.com. P A T H S F T O N. N-E-C-T-I-O-N, pathofconnection.com. And you can also get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. And the, uh, the book again was Healing Wounds of Childhood and, and Adventure of a Lifetime. I mean, that's interesting because when you hear, I know people get tired of me speaking about sports and, 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 and using it as an analogy, but, you know, I spent 40 <laughs> since I was uh, a junior in high school until 2019 working in athletics. So I spent a mm. lot of time there. Um, you hear coaches speak of culture culture, my culture, the team's culture, 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 culture. Um, do you think it's being misused in that case? No, I, no, I don't. I, I think it refers kind of to the ways of a particular group, you know? Like the team's culture is how the team does things, what the team believes what the team values, what's important to the team. You know, I think that's how it's used. And, you know, we talk about the culture of our country and the subcultures within it. Yeah, we got a lot of subcultures now. We sure um, do. <laughs> and you, as, as we talk, things keep popping in my head. I, I promise you, this is the last one. As we went through um, COVID, the, the lockdown or shutdown, or however you want to place it, uh, a lot of uh, alienation and loneliness happened. Uh, is this having an effect on uh, the amount of, of P, uh, P, T, S, P, S, T, uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting it wrong. Um, PTSD. Right. 
did that have a lot? Uh, did that bring on some of this too in in our country? Well, let me answer it this way. You know, I can't say about what the statistics for PTSD was, but I can tell you that in about a year and a half, I turned away over 50 prospective clients that I could not take in because I did not have space in my practice. Wow. I never got so many calls as I did after about a year of that pandemic. Do you think it's because we had time to, we had so much time on our hands that we just sat and thought and things from our past came? No, I think it was because, uh, JB, I think it was because of the isolation mm-hmm. and because, you know, if you're stuck in the house, people, and if you don't like them, if you have problems with them, it's going to get heightened. It's going to be more intense if you can't, you know, go to your office and go see your friends and go to your social groups. And, you know, I, I think it just intensified everything and particularly the aloneness. Well, I, I tell people I was lucky. I um, was made an essential employee at my job, which meant that I still had to go to work. Our hours were scaled back, but we still had to go to work, and we had contact with each other. And we weren't, you know, from four to six hours a day instead of maybe eight hours a day. And um, and our financial, at least for me, my finances got leveled and even got better because I didn't lose anything. So. Oh, that good, stress, good. that stress was not there either. And then I started this podcast and a and a, a, a another business, which increased my finances. So that when I hear people talk about how much it really hurt them, I just wipe my brow and go. Thankfully, I didn't have to go through that. Mm, good, good for you. Well, Dr. St. John, I'd like to thank you for your time today. Uh, it's been informative for me on many different levels, and I hope our listeners do uh, find it as well. Uh, just one more time, if I can bother you uh, for your contact information for our listeners. Sure. My website is you know, www.pathof.com. Yeah. And I can give you my email address if you want that as well. If that's up to you. <laughs> yeah, sure. It's John Path. Yeah. Dash J O N. It's spelled differently. The John there does not have an H, and mm-hmm. that is different. So, Don at St-John.com. All right. So, this has been Dr. Don St. John. 
here on the JB's Low Tech Podcast. Hi, I'm Mike Bryant, and I'm driving my car safely and legally communicating on my phone. Minnesota law allows a driver to use their cell phone to make calls, text, listen to music or podcasts, and get directions by voice command or single-touch activation without holding your phone. Violations are very expensive. The National Safety Council reports that cell phone use while driving leads to 1.6 million crashes per year, and nearly 400,000 injuries are caused by texting and driving. Not surprising, since four seconds with your eyes off the road is like driving the length of a football field blindfolded. And research shows that just two seconds increases the risk of an accident up to 24 times. Texting may only take a second, but it can end your life or ruin it forever. Please, drive safely and stay alive. Find Bradshaw and Bryant, personal injury attorneys at minnesotapersonalinjury.com. Bradshaw and Bryant. back ladies and gentlemen to the JB Low Tech podcast. Right now it's time for In the Mind of JB where I kind of let loose of something that's rolling around in my mind and my brain. By the time that this recording airs we we will have an answer but the former president of the United States may be indicted for using campaign front funds as hush money. Some people think that's not a big enough offense to have him indicted. I keep going back to one question and one question only. If it was me, would I get indicted? That's where I'll let that stay. Well, I'd like to thank Dr. St. John again for his information and insight. As usual, not all views stated on this show uh, do I agree with. But uh, he had a lot of great insight and a lot of great information for us. Well, as usual, tell a friend about the podcast. And remember that it can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and a lot other platforms. Until next time, this is the, has been the JB's Low Tech Podcast. JB is my name and f***ing up mother. This is my game. Right on. Negro, black, African American, black, black, black. Django, J. B. Damn, Dolomite. Great God in heaven, you know. J. B. Our great Negro sex machine.